Hi, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to cover one of the most important technical advances in modern surgery, the invention of the heart-lung bypass machine. This breakthrough essentially created the field of cardiac surgery, and its invention was due to one surgeon's perseverance and singular vision, spanning nearly three decades. Amazingly, the idea for this invention was born during a terrible clinical experience he had as a young doctor. We'll cover all this and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The surgeon we're talking about in this episode is John Hasham Gibbon Jr., or Jack, to those who knew him. He was born on September 29, 1903, at his family home in Philadelphia to a prominent family. The first American Gibbon emigrated in 1684 from Wiltshire, England. John Jr.'s great-great-great-grandfather was a physician in London, and John Jr. was the fifth generation of his family to enter medicine and the third surgeon, no pressure. His father, John Sr., graduated from Jefferson Medical College in 1891, his grandfather, Robert Gibbon, also earned a medical degree at Jefferson, which became the Thomas Jefferson University in 1969 and is the ninth oldest medical school in existence in the U.S. His mother, Marjorie Young, came from an historic family as well, tracing her roots back to William Penn, one of the founding fathers of America. He founded the colony of Pennsylvania, so named in honor of his father, Admiral Sir William Penn, and the Latin word sylvan, meaning forest land. William Penn also guided the planning and developing of the city of Philadelphia. John Jr.'s mother stimulated his interest in literature, philosophy, and poetry, which would take on some significance later. In 1919, he entered Princeton University just before his 16th birthday, where he studied philosophy and religion, graduating in 1923 at the age of 19. From there, he followed in his father's and grandfather's footsteps and entered Jefferson Medical College. Now, apparently, the early years of medical school didn't suit him, which he described as, quote, boring with endless memorization, end quote, to which some of us can relate. During his sophomore year, John Jr. told his father he was going to quit for a career as a writer. John Sr. was able to convince his son to carry on and finish training and turn his writing urges towards medical research, which he did graduating in 1927, luckily for all of us. Following a two-year internship at the Pennsylvania Hospital, Gibbon began a research fellowship in February of 1930 at Harvard University with Dr. Edward D. Churchill, a renowned pioneer in thoracic surgery and significant figure in the early development of lung cancer surgery. It was during this time when two significant events occurred which determined Gibbon's future. Now, the first was a clinical case that Dr. Churchill was consulted on. A 53-year-old woman had undergone a routine cholecystectomy, which is gallbladder removal, at the Massachusetts General Hospital and was given the standard, at the time, two weeks of bed rest. On October 3, 1930, she developed pleuritic chest pain, which is a sharp pain in the chest when breathing, tachycardia, a fast heartbeat, and profound dyspnea, difficulty breathing. At 2.45 p.m., Churchill was asked to see the patient, and he diagnosed a pulmonary embolism, meaning a blood clot had moved into the vessels to her lungs. At the time, the only option was to remove the blood clot in open-heart surgery. Called a pulmonary embolectomy, the operation was also known as the Trendelenburg operation after the famous German surgeon Friedrich Trendelenburg, who described it in Leipzig, Germany 23 years earlier. Now, only a few... 9 of 140 patients had survived the operation in the European literature, and at the time, there had been no survivors in the U.S. The name might be familiar to some of you with surgical training, as the Trendelenburg and reverse Trendelenburg positions are used in the operating room. I'll cover him in a later podcast. Now, because of the high risk of the surgery, the plan was to transfer the patient to the OR, monitor her frequently, and operate only as a last resort, 
Gibbon was chosen to record the patient's blood pressure, pulse rate, and respiratory rate every 15 minutes while the entire surgical team remained scrubbed throughout the night, ready to perform surgery at a moment's notice. By 8.05 a.m. the next morning, when the patient became unresponsive, Churchill performed the embolectomy in 6 minutes and 30 seconds. Now, the patient did not survive. Gibbon was deeply affected by this. Here's how he described his long vigil through the night. Quote, During the 17 hours by this patient's side, the thought constantly recurred that the patient's hazardous condition could be improved if some of the blue blood in the patient's distended veins could be continuously withdrawn into an apparatus where the blood could pick up oxygen and discharge carbon dioxide, and then pump this blood back into the patient's arteries. Such a procedure would also lend support to the patient's circulation while the embolectomy was being performed, end quote. The idea of a heart-lung bypass machine had been born. Now before we move on, a common misconception should be cleared up. Gibbon described the blood in the veins as blue, but that's not actually true. Veins look blue because wavelengths of blue light cannot penetrate skin as well as red light, so more blue wavelengths are reflected back than red. And in the 19th century, the term blue blood began being used to describe aristocrats and royalty in Europe. As they spent most of their time indoors, not requiring any physical labor in the sun, they were very pale and their blue-looking veins could be easily seen. Now, deoxygenated blood, the kind in your veins, is actually just a darker red. Your blood is never blue, unless you're a horseshoe crab, see podcast 53. Side side note, the octopus also has blue blood, which is because it has hemocyanin, a copper-rich protein that carries oxygen, instead of hemoglobin, which is more efficient at transporting oxygen than hemoglobin in oxygen-poor environments like the very low water temperatures of the deep ocean. Also, they have three hearts. Isn't that cool? Okay, enough. So the second significant event during Gibbon's time working in Churchill's laboratory was meeting his research assistant, Mary Hopkinson. All winter and spring, they worked together, and they married on March 14th of 1931. They would go on to have four children, Mary, John, Alice, and Marjorie. John Jr. and Mary returned to Philadelphia in 1931, where he began practicing surgery at the Pennsylvania Hospital. In the mornings, he would operate, and in the afternoon, he'd work in the lab with Mary. By 1934, Gibbon was granted another research fellowship with Dr. Churchill to further the work on the heart-lung bypass machine, and Mary was offered a position as a technician. Now, Gibbon's idea was received with skepticism from his colleagues, but he pressed on. When they had trouble getting parts, they would work with converted materials bought at second-hand shops. John and Mary would save money by walking about the Boston streets at night, securing cats without expense. Gibbon once said, quote, I can recall prowling at Beacon Hill at night with some tuna fish as bait and a gunny bag to catch any of those stray cats which swarmed over Boston in those days, end quote. In that year, Gibbon was able to perfuse a feline model of pulmonary embolism, done by occluding the pulmonary artery with a surgical clamp, for two hours and 51 minutes. Gibbon said, quote, I will never forget the day when we were able to screw the clamp all the way, completely occluding the pulmonary artery, with the extracorporeal blood circuit in operation, with no change in the animal's blood pressure. My wife and I threw arms around each other and danced around the laboratory, end quote. After completing his research here in Boston, Gibbon returned to Philadelphia in 1935 and was given a position at the Harrison Surgical Research Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. By 1939, they published results of total body perfusion experiments on a number of laboratory cats that survived by employing the early apparatus invented by Gibbon. It would soon be time to try the machine on a human. Now, unfortunately, they were interrupted by world events. 
Dr. Gibbon volunteered for duty in World War II and was sent to the South Pacific Theater, where he was made Chief of Surgical Services at the 364th Station Hospital. He later served at the Mayo General Hospital outside Galesburg, Illinois. Gibbon was discharged in 1946 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Army and returned to work on the heart-lung machine at Jefferson Medical College in 1946 as Director of Surgical Research and Professor of Surgery, as well as Co-Chairman of the Department of Surgery. Now, Gibbon recruited a number of residents and medical students to work on some of the technical issues, such as hemolysis, which is the busting open of red blood cells, and the inability to oxygenate large volumes of blood as would be needed in humans. Another issue was funding and engineering expertise, a problem solved by one of Gibbon's medical students, E.J. Clark, who had spent the war flying Air Force transports. Now, using his father-in-law's connections, Clark introduced Gibbon to the chairman of IBM, Thomas J. Watson Sr., he loved the project, and not only provided funding, but assigned his chief engineer, Gustav Malmros, to help improve the design. From 1946 to 1953, Malmros built three different machines fully funded by IBM. They helped to increase the size of the oxygenator and added a filter to prevent the formation of fibrin clots, among other improvements. The mortality rates in experiments with larger animals decreased from 80% to 12%, which made the team believe it was time to use the machine on humans. In February of 1952, a 15-month-old female presented with right ventricular heart failure. This was thought to be due to a large atrial septal defect. Remember, this is 1952. Imaging studies were not what they are now. Once in, they did not find a defect, and the patient died on the operating table. An autopsy revealed she had a patent ductus arteriosus. Now, a year later, on March 27, 1953, patient Cecilia Bavalek, an 18-year-old freshman at Wilkes College, Pennsylvania, was hospitalized for severe right ventricular failure secondary to a large atrial septal defect. This time, the defect was confirmed by cardiac catheterization. After the misdiagnosis with the first patient, Gibbon had sent one of his residents, Robert G. Johnson, to learn the technique. On May 6th of 1953, Cecilia Bavlik was taken to the operating room by Gibbon. She was on the bypass machine for 45 minutes, and her circulation was fully supported for 26 minutes while Gibbon performed a primary closure of the defect. The patient recovered uneventfully going home on post-operative day 13. After the surgery, Gibbon felt, quote, extreme exhilaration, relief, and joy that the patient had done well, end quote. It was the first successful open-heart surgery using extracorporeal circulation, meaning the heart-lung bypass machine. A new era of surgery had begun. Now, despite this game-changing event, Gibbon didn't hold an international press conference or publish right away. In fact, the only report of the operation was published in the Minnesota Medicine Journal one year later in 1954. It's available online and the article is entitled Mechanical Heart and Lung Apparatus to Cardiac Surgery, which was a transcript of a talk given at a symposium at the University of Minnesota. The article is quite readable, giving a description of the apparatus, some of the issues they overcame to make it work, and describing the animal models and the four patients he tried it on, including the first baby and Cecilia Bavlik. The last two were operated upon in July of 1953. Both patients were underdeveloped girls around five and a half years of age, and each weighed only about 30 pounds. Now, although the machine performed adequately, both died immediately postoperatively due to the significant cardiac defects that could not be completely repaired. During his presentation, Gibbon even showed a motion picture during the presentation of one of these operations. Now, following these deaths, Gibbon declared a one-year moratorium on the use of the device to investigate how to solve clotting problems and blood loss. He eventually decided that the technique might be too immature to be used safely 
and never operated on the heart again. Now, over the decade after Gibbon's accomplishment, a professional relationship with the Mayo Clinic was built to share knowledge and experience. Now, the Mayo Clinic was known for having more cardiac cases than anywhere in the U.S., and asked for the plans for Gibbon's machine, which he shared in February of 1953. The Mayo Clinic's engineering department built a machine based on Gibbon's original design. On March 23rd of 1955, John Kirkland and colleagues used the modified heart-lung machine, now known as the Mayo Gibbon, to successfully repair an atrial septal defect. The Mayo Clinic further developed the Mayo Gibbon type oxygenator, and for the next several years used this device on hundreds of patients. The mortality rate for cardiac surgery dropped from 50% in 1955 to 20% in 1956 and 10% in 1957. As for Gibbon, he continued in private practice and teaching at Jefferson, where he was known for presenting interesting cases to medical students every week in what was called Gibbon's Pit. He had many other academic contributions, including writing the textbook Surgery of the Chest, a standard in cardiothoracic surgery. Gibbon retired in 1967 to his beloved mainline Linfield Farm, where he pursued poetry, painting, and tennis. It was while playing tennis with his wife Mary that he had a fatal heart attack on February 5, 1973. He never gained any financial benefit from his invention, preferring to make it available for all to improve surgery. His impact wasn't forgotten by his colleagues. Here is how he was described by the famous cardiac surgeon Denton Cooley. Quote, All of us, surgeons and patients alike, owe Dr. Gibbon a tremendous debt of gratitude for his tireless dedication to the development of the heart-lung machine. His work made open procedures on the heart a reality. Since then, countless lives have been saved because of heart-lung bypass machines that are based on the principles of the early Gibbon apparatus, end quote. Let's close this episode, I think fittingly, with a poem written by Gibbon in 1960. Many are the trysts I've had with the mortals here. Their bodies offer to my trust to cut and sew and maybe cure. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode's inspiration came to me of all places from reading about the upcoming baseball season. I came across an article about thoracic outlet syndrome and high-performance athletes and the surgical treatment for it. There's some fun stuff in there, and given that it's the start of the baseball season, I thought I'd cover the topic. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.